You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. We are in a bit of a weird time slot this week, because by the time that this episode comes out, the entire world will be talking about E3, of course. But I thought maybe I could just pretend as if E3 had already happened. And I've got three things that are going to happen. Three, if you will, predictions that will happen at E3. So everyone, by the time the show comes out, will be talking about the following things. First. I like this idea. (laughs) (laughs) At the first joint Xbox, uh, Microsoft, and um, Bethesda uh, conference, or the showcase, they will reveal uh, the Elder Scrolls 6, and it will be a console, uh, it will be a launch exclusive for Xbox and PC. Number two, there will be no Nintendo Switch Pro, but the Nintendo (laughs) Treehouse will be completely software-focused. Maybe we get another logo for a Metroid game or something. (laughs) 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 And the third one is, at the Gearbox showcase, they're going to show a mobile game for Borderlands. And it's going to be like a, it's going to be, I imagine it to be like a tactical uh, like a tactical RPG, top-down perspective, XCOM style, where you basically maintain the key aspects of the Borderlands formula, but you can play with, like, you know, you have, like, a, sw- a small squad of, like, five five people, and you fight against uh, against these villains from the Borderla- Borderlands uh, franchise. I, I kind of like that idea, making it an XCOM type. All right, all right. I'm with you on all of these <laughs> predictions. I'll add, I'll add a caveat to the first prediction, which is, Todd Howard will come out in some sort of horrifying robot suit and just start <laughs> laughing as the money from Fallout 76, you know, all the money from that just is is put onto a billboard behind him or something. Are we talking now about E3 predictions or predictions for like a regular Tuesday? That's <laughs> <laughs> Todd Howard's morning. <laughs> well, honey, I've got to put on the robot suit and eat all the money now. <laughs> not the robot suit again. Said, said with love. Not, not the suit. Oh, God. <laughs> I think I, so Dan and Stefan, you both know that I don't really follow uh, gaming announcements as they come because I'm, I'm not a super hype cycle oriented guy. But I will say that the one thing that was really gratifying and interesting for me to see a couple days ago uh, and that got a lot of Dark Souls and Hidetaka Miyazaki fans really, really excited was finally getting a release date uh, and I think another trailer, which I haven't watched, um, for Elden Ring, the uh, much ballyhooed years-in-the-making collaboration between Miyazaki and George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones fame. So we now know that that is at least slated to be released this coming January, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, It's funny, you know, because uh, I think from my perspective, at least, Miyazaki and his work is some of the least hype cycle oriented gaming uh, on the market, at least in terms of the the publishers and the people who make it, making a big deal of it with, you know, lots of trailers and hype beforehand. Uh, I, I don't remember 
basically anything about Sekiro except maybe one trailer before it dropped. Uh, but <laughs> I feel like uh, the the poor Dark Souls fans, myself included, have been starved for new stuff from him for so long that this is just like a drop of rain in the desert. And there's there's sweet uh, sweet rejoicing going on in a lot of corners of the internet thanks to that. It looks quite delicious, yeah. I think that you're right, Stefan. I don't think there will be a Switch Pro mm. announcement, but they'll kind of... Uh, saying but here's a release date for breath of the wild 2 you're gonna see it's going to happen you're gonna see breath of the wild 2 gameplay that is mysteriously in 4k <laughs> and you think like okay <laughs> <laughs> so i think they definitely want to show they are at least their their top shelf uh, games in the highest quality and that's why they're probably going to build off of this new hardware that is that, that doubtlessly exists Dear listeners out there, we've got a tiny announcement uh, regarding our feed in the coming, let's say, one or two weeks. I think that's a relatively feasible time frame because uh, there are some older podcast episodes from With a Terrible Fate, podcast entries that was that were published before before I joined and before we launched this new newly conceptualized podcast, and we want to move them over. They were originally on SoundCloud. And we want to move them over to have everything in one place, which is nice because it is easier for us. We have one feed to maintain and not two. And it is also nice for you, dear listeners out there, because if you want to in between episodes, you can easily just scroll back. We're going to see whether we can time them time them back a little bit so they shouldn't be on top but at the bottom and marked as, as archive or something. But you can scroll there and you can just give it a listen because there's definitely some stuff in there that is... Uh, still very much relevant, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm really excited uh, as an opportunity not only to merge all the podcast content into one place, but also to share these episodes with uh, perhaps listeners of this new podcast who haven't heard those old ones. For a little context for those who don't know, the old one was spearheaded by Dan uh, and the the two typical hosts on it were myself and him. uh, And we conceived of it as what we called the drawing board uh, with the whole idea basically being we put together these analyses of video games on the publication that is with a terrible fate. But oftentimes those ideas come out of the much less structured conversations that gamers have all the time. And so we wanted to use the podcast as a venue to specifically represent that step in our methodological process. And so while we talk about a lot of the same topics that we would talk about on the the new and improved version of the With a Terrible Fate podcast, it definitely has a different tone. We dig into a lot of fun stuff that I think listeners will enjoy, everything from um, the different things that the term difficulty can mean when we're talking about difficulty in a game to what it really means for a game to be immersive, as as I've harped on in previous episodes of this very podcast, to even thinking about the storytelling value of mobile gaming, um, like the Final Fantasy game Brave Exvius. We have a whole episode about that. So uh, don't be alarmed if you get a lot of notifications if you're following us and, and you see these episodes being uploaded, uh, but I do hope you get a chance to listen to to them and enjoy them exactly yeah that's the the main reason why we wanted to announce this in advance because you're going to get roughly 15 uh, notifications of new episodes being released uh, that were previous that were recorded previously uh, to the launch of this of this podcast okay that being said as you know with a terrible fate we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling and that is why 
this very show is free and independent. You won't encounter any advertisements. And as you can see in the instance of the announcement that we just made, no content is blocked behind a paywall or something where we say here, these 15 episodes you get if you if you support us on Patreon. Instead, it's all up to you to give us the support if you want to. And if you shall decide to do that, then you can go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. In our main story today, we want to talk about a, I would argue, rather relatable problem, which is facing the pure length, the pure extensiveness of video games and how it might be tough to slot them into the schedule of a person who actually has a job and not simply every afternoon, every afternoon free uh, or maybe other responsibilities in life, such as family, kids, all these things uh, that that might uh, might exist throughout one's person's existence on this planet. And that's what we're going to talk about because, Aaron, you wrote an article that is predominantly about Final Fantasy VII. We're going to get to the analysis that you present later on in the side quests, but we want to, to go these initial steps together to reflect on how games can be overwhelming. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to set the stage for this article that came out yesterday at the time of recording, um, this past Friday, uh, this was something that I'd been thinking about and meditating on for a long time, both in the context and outside the context of Final Fantasy VII Remake. And with the first DLC for Final Fantasy VII Remake Intermission coming out this past week, I wanted to take the occasion to publish this and think a little bit more about how uh, I think this game ultimately is able to overcome interesting challenges with the JRPG storytelling medium that make it hard for adults to be able to access. And I think... uh, you know, after reflecting and getting some feedback from people about it, I, I don't know that I necessarily titled this the best way. I called it Final Fantasy Remake as the template for grown-up JRPGs. And I think many of us who love JRPGs, myself included, are inclined to be kind of uh, defensive right off the bat in terms of the content of those games and concerned that some of the actual substance of the plot can be seen as immature or more directed towards children than adults. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I wrote this article because I love JRPGs. I think that they are truly some of the best stories ever told. And one of the struggles that I have found as I've gone into adulthood, and as you say, Stefan, you know, other commitments come up, your lives take on more dimensions, it becomes simply harder to sit down and commit long, uninterrupted periods of time to playing a video game. And what I found was it was becoming harder for me, despite my love for JRPGs and recognition of their storytelling value, to be willing to commit to playing one. Even if I recognized that a game was going to be really good, it felt like a conscious investment to say, all right, I'm going to sit down and play this JRPG. And so I wanted to think in part about why that was and what kind of barriers to being able to play a JRPG story come about as we get older and have less uninterrupted time to spend on them. And then I wanted to think about how Final Fantasy VII Remake in interesting ways, I think, uh, structures its story in a novel way to overcome those barriers. So as you said, 
we'll be talking about Final Fantasy Remake itself later on, but to set the stage for the challenges of what I would call accessibility for adults playing JRPGs, right? I, I think <laughs> one interesting anecdote I have that kind of kicked off my thinking on this topic was actually a conversation with another one of With the Terrible Fates analysts, a, a great guy by the name of Peter Finn, a couple of years ago at this point, um, because we were talking about JRPGs and he was bemoaning something really similar to this, saying that he felt like he just didn't have the time to routinely commit to these ridiculously long stories. And at the time, um, being the very open-minded person that I was, I very flat-footedly told him, <laughs> well, you know, adults make time for literature all the time. If you can sit down and read War and Peace, then there's no reason to suppose that you can't sit down and, you know, take the time to play like Final Fantasy VII or Persona V or something like that, right? <laughs> Which uh, was a really great and thoughtful answer, Aaron said sarcastically. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because I, I took that as a given at the time. And I do think that if we think literature is valuable, we should make time for it. And yet the difference, as I started to look at some of the stats that are actually out there, is much starker than I expected in terms of how long it takes to complete just what you would call the main story or what I call in the article the minimum complete plot of a JRPG versus reading a novel that's considered one of the, the great books of humankind, right? So for example, and I, I talk about this in the article, War and Peace, on average, assuming that you read 250 words per minute, that'll take you about 39 hours to complete. Uh, to complete just the main story of Persona 5, in contrast, it'll take you about 100 hours. So that's over twice as much of just sheer time commitment in order to get through the story, right? And even recognizing that it's a really valuable story, I think that's just a really interesting and different dynamic for thinking about the amount of time you have to set aside. I think especially in terms of how I consider stories to work, right? I think that if a story is representing a certain plot with certain characters across the certain arc, uh, you can get some value out of it if you complete just some of it and don't finish it, but you really don't get any of the narrative impact, I don't think, unless you get from one beginning to an end, and in the case of a video game, just like that that minimal complete plot of the game. So you're basically saying when you pick up a video game, like either I'm going to commit 100 hours, more than twice as long as the time it would take to read a great novel, to experiencing this story, or I'm going to drop off at some point and suffer the consequences of that. And that struck me as one of the first just major hurdles to being able to pick up and play a JRPG. I think that there are other issues specific to video games that come downstream of that. But to think about just this issue of length in the first instance, you know, I have my own examples. I'm happy to chat about them. But I wanted to ask you guys, my intrepid podcast countrymen, have, have you encountered games in recent history where you felt like this, where either you haven't picked them up because you feel like you know the plot is long and you weren't willing to commit to it? Or perhaps even more sadly, have you picked up a game with a really long plot and gotten a significant you know, percentage through it and then decided for one reason or another to abandon it? I definitely changed the way in which I select which games to play. Because what I do these days, what I, I haven't done like 10 years ago, is I go on how long to beat <laughs> beforehand, if I don't have a, an intuitive estimation anyway. 
and I look at how long it takes. And not on average, because I play very slowly. <laughs> I usually take the, there's this leisure category for people who just peruse through the game and just like look <laughs> at everything, you know, read all the books in Skyrim, you know. And then <laughs> you end up with a lot, lo a, a lot longer amount of time as the average playtime. And uh, yeah, I think I do that because I know that if I don't have that time to commit to a JRPG or an ex otherwise extensive video game, then I'd rather leave it be for the time being. I, I mentioned last week when we uh, talked about ways that we play games, I mentioned that I typically have two games going at a time. There's the game that I'm invested in story-wise that I want to devote all my attention to. And then there's what I call like my grind game, which is just something that I can put on and I don't have to be very invested. I can listen to a podcast or watch a movie while I'm playing it, something like that. Um, I do find that with the job I have, which can often be very exhausting by the end of the day, I, I gravitate towards those grind kind of games more often. And I'll say, I do want to play this story-heavy game, but I want to devote time to it. So I start thinking, when is my next vacation? Or when is my time off where I can really sit with it? I currently have, I'm staring at it right now. Um, I love the premise of Yakuza Like a Dragon. Yeah. I played about <laughs> five hours of it. And I, I'm, I'm sold. I'm totally on board with it. But I got to a point where I'm like, I, I can't be distracted. I need to enjoy this. And I know it's going to take me forever to beat it. So I, I'm thinking, okay, when am I taking a week off? I'll enjoy Yakuza then. <laughs> yeah, Yakuza is such a typical example of that, right? I'm also I'm also putting off like a dragon, even though I, I only played the first Yakuza game when it was remastered and released. But I'm still putting it off because I know that I'll have to commit so much time into like friggin' bowling and darts and going out <laughs> with some kind of virtual hostess club. Karaoke okay and yep. My goodness. That sounds reminiscent uh, to me of Persona, which I'm still in the process of working through over a, a months-long campaign and hiatus of the kind that I'm describing exactly. It's interesting, too. I, I don't know if you guys have any games like this, but I think for me, in some cases, this dynamic of having really long plots and really a sense of sunk cost after having spent a certain amount of time with them manifests in this weird way where it's really hard for me to say to myself, okay, I've put in the good college try with this game and now I'm going to walk away from it and abandon it. My favorite example of this is I picked up Tales of Zillia probably five years ago now and played maybe the first 15 to 20 hours of it. And then I, don't, I couldn't even remember at this point or tell you if, if school got in the way because I was playing it while I was in college or if I just simply got distracted with another game that came out. But I put it down. I haven't come back to it. And yet in my head, that's still not a game that I've abandoned. I just see myself as being on a hiatus from it, uh, which is weird because if I were to pick it up again, which I do hope to do sincerely at some point, I would have to either start over or do a lot of background work to remind myself of what the heck is going on. Uh, but it's, it just seems so hard with these long games, especially when you know that the story is going to be worth it, as is the case, I think, for many of them, to admit that the game has exhausted you or bested your capacity to actually complete it. That's, that's really hard. 
that's what I find as I get older is if I, if I put a game down, I'm consciously making the decision to redo everything that I did because I know I'll either forget it or not be as invested. So in your example with Tales of Zillia, you know, if, if I were in that position, I know that I would have to start over because I would have either forgotten everything or would feel a almost as if I were doing a disservice to the story to just try to ha- hazily remember the point that I got to. Yeah, I actually don't do hiatus when it comes to video games. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've started this I've started this in the last let's say 2 to 3 years and it feels kind of refreshing that when I notice that I won't be completing a game, which is the exception. Usually I do commit. I'm really still that kind of person that has one video game at a time and I start the next one only when I've completed it, ideally platinumed it. Uh, but if I if I turn my back then I usually uh, watch the rest of the story on YouTube. This is something that we also, I mean, we asked around on Twitter a little bit what people have, uh, uh, like, regarding their experiences. And uh, der Matthäus Luna, he uh, referenced Near Replicant and said it. he felt like the game did not respect his time. He said, quote, there are things one has to do to achieve some endings that are just too time-consuming. I watched the other ends on YouTube, end quote. And this is exactly what I do as well. I did that with Mafia 3 when I noticed that I need to just go to a couple of chores. Like, I say a couple of chores, but actually, I mean, extensive chores uh, in order to complete that game. And then I just said, no, I'm going to I'm gonna watch the rest on YouTube. <laughs> so I, I, I won't comment on the nearness of it. Because <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not go down that road. If, if I were to explain how I disagree with near, we'd be here for a good two hours. So we won't. We and, won't. Then I can, and then I can talk about the story of Kingdom Hearts some more. And we'll be here for days and days and days. That's right. And, and then the podcast will be as long as a JRPG. And everyone's really happy. <laughs> I think that is interesting, though, Stefan, because uh, you know I know you've done uh, you've done work in video game like journalism that's more traditional outside of the analysis we do on with a terrible fate, and you're also in a game studies program. It's interesting to me that you talk about finishing some games on YouTube because I I know that's a fairly controversial thing in general. I know that I personally have some pretty strong theoretical proclivities against you know watching the content of a game versus actually playing it so it's it's interesting to me that you feel like in certain cases with certain games you're licensed to make that choice rather than playing it yeah that's a very good point that you raise because it is actually i mean i don't do this with games that i analyze for my phd or in any other capacity as a game studies uh, lecturer or game studies scholar but it is true that it is a a tough thing that when you, like in comparison to my colleagues who are in film studies, television studies, photography, you know, um, it takes so much time to complete a video game that if you want to write a proper analysis, an academic analysis of it, you need to have at least finished it once, I would say, in order to get the full overview. And you can't, I would argue, uh, skip through a YouTube video because it just very much is not the experience of playing that game. At the same time, though, you have to be a little bit pragmatic about the time. And you have to also consider that it is hard to play a video game and take notes on the side for an analysis, right? I have this exact problem with my PhD because whenever you take a note, you need to pause the game, you need to put the controller down. It always like completely rips you out. 
of the flow of the game. So what I'm doing to circumvent that is I play each game that I analyze fully while recording my own playthrough. And this recording of my own playthrough is then the basis of my analysis of my notes that I take afterwards. So I use it like, just like film and television scholars would do uh, protocols of sequences, right? Where they write everything down in a table in order to then get a different access to the material. That's how I do it. But it is an inherent problem of studying video games or being in, in video game journalism that it requires so much time to just get through some games. I find myself to be very thankful when a game is set up in such a way that you have easy access to different parts that you want to analyze. So Remake, for example, is structured in a chapterized way. Um, and other games too, you know, whether it's just sort of having a lot of different save states that you can refer back to, um, or even like things like boss rushes or theater uh, options in a game where you can just go back and watch a particular cutscene. Um, it's interesting that I, I think mostly JRPGs will have those um, features a lot of the time where it, it almost understands we know this was a huge time commitment. If you'd like to go back to one part, one part in particular, we're going to give you that option. Yeah, and it's, it's funny. This is one of the things I talk about in my article because even beyond the theater system, which has been so helpful for me as well for the reasons that you talk about, Dan, I've noticed that, especially in recent years, a lot of JRPGs will include story synopses where you can go into the main menu and find just little write-ups of each of the chapters that you've been through, which I have to imagine in some, uh, at least to some degree is designed to ameliorate this problem of the plots being very long for these games that many people can only engage with, uh, on, you know, an hour to hour basis with these, these small moments of play throughout weeks or months that are interrupted by a bunch of real world time in between. Right. Um, that transitions really well into the second challenge that I have with the accessibility of JRPGs, though. And, and Stefan, it's interesting that you talk about recording your own playthroughs of games because maybe this is a way to help circumvent this issue. But the issue that I'm talking about is what I refer to in the article as the discontinuity of player maxims. Um, a maxim, for those who aren't familiar with that term in the more philosophical sense, is basically just saying, well, you know, people are able to take actions but also when people act, they oftentimes do so for certain reasons in order to promote certain ends. That's all a maxim is. It's basically just that bundle of one's intentionality and what they're trying to do with an action, that action itself, right? And I think what's really interesting and salient to me about video game storytelling and what I've spent the lion's share of my time on With a Terrible Fate analyzing with regard to particular games is that Video game fictions have this magical ability to take all of the inputs of a player and take all of the maxims upon which a player is acting across the course of a game and make interesting narrative meaning out of the player's role in that game in a way that other media simply couldn't. Right. And you know, there are plenty of examples of this on the site. Uh, you can think of anything from the player's role as a like metaphysical entity in Xenoblade Chronicles 1 and 2 
to her role as a metaphysical vampire in Code Vein, which I've also talked about, uh, something um, more run-of-the-mill like the big twist in the first Bioshock, which I won't put here uh, in case any of our listeners are still sitting on that very old game, but also has to do crucially with how the player is acting on maxims and how the game basically subverts that and says, well, actually, those maxims didn't have the same efficacy in the game that you expected that they did, right? And I think one of the things that is especially challenging for me that wouldn't be equally challenging with a long plot in a book or a really long TV show is that even when you have these really helpful theater systems or synopses of plot, it's really hard for a game to similarly summarize and remind players of the actions they took and the reasons on the basis of which they were acting, right? That's more of like the kinds of experiences you would need to write down in a diary or to go back to what you were saying, Stefan, maybe if you like record yourself streaming the game and get in the habit of talking through your actions out loud or something like that. Right. And in the absence of that, when you're playing a game over a long period of time, it can be just really hard to keep track of all the actions you took and why you took them. And so if storytellers end up making these nuanced points about the role of the player, it can end up being really easy to miss them. And I think that's just a tragedy, especially when, in my view, when we're talking about just like the tropes of JRPGs. I mean, we've talked about this in various venues on With the Terrible Fate before, but so often their storytelling turns in crucial ways on the final act of the game or even just the final boss fight. And I think oftentimes in many of these JRPGs, we have a tendency as players to see those final fights, which can oftentimes be very metaphysical and abstract as these kind of puzzling non sequiturs. When if we're able to view them in the context of all our actions across the course of the game, they can actually become instead these powerful ciphers to understand what our role was and how it makes sense of the story as a whole. But when the games are so long and we lose track of our own maxims and kind of get this discontinuity of player identity, it can be really, really hard to actually understand that cipher. And so we end up being confused as opposed to moved by a really complex and fascinating game. That's just a real tragedy to me. Uh, and, and I think one of the biggest challenges for this medium. I think that the problem is even exacerbated in games where your own, where you where you set your own goals to a certain degree. Like the first thing that I thought about when you raised this point was Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing and Stardew Valley are two games that I actually abandoned because after stepping away from it for a while, I just couldn't get back into it for not, I mean, for two reasons, really. The one is, the first one is I can't remember what I was doing. I can't, I can't remember what I was building on my farm. I can't remember how I wanted to design my island. Some things are just like unfinished and I hadn't, have no idea anymore where I wanted to go with them. And the other thing is that I can't relate to the characters anymore. That's really painful to me because I know that when I initially uh, populated my island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, that I was really, I had a really like close parasocial relationship with these characters. And then they talk to me and say like, oh, you haven't been here for a while, but by the way, thank you for the flower you gave me. And I'm like, who are you again? <laughs> I've got no idea. <laughs> oh, and this, it's like, it's really sad. And that's why I, I then try to get back into it. And I probably could if I would spend quite some time orienting myself again, but often enough, I just drop it entirely. But at that point, I get in these frenzies of trying to platinum games 
And I know, Stefan, I know that you also are very much involved in that. And then Aaron and I, we also really like to do it. And I think that for me, this comes up a lot where you mentioned what your goals are. So I recently came back to the Dark Souls series because maybe a year or two ago, Aaron and I played through them and it was my goal to platinum each of them because I had platinum Sekiro and then I went back to Bloodborne and platinum that. And then I just said, well, let's just round it all out. So I did Dark Souls 1 and then we were kind of on a time crunch because we were planning to talk about uh, Miyazaki's work for a PAX convention. And so I didn't platinum two and three. And now I, I kind of put myself in this position where I recently went back and platinum two, and then I went to three. But the way that Dark Souls is constructed is that you have to, in order to platinum it, go through several playthroughs. And it's something where I went into it saying, if I don't do it in this, uh, in this iteration of playing the game, I will have to redo everything the next time I come to it. Because it's something that I can't just pick up and remember which rings did I get, which spells did I get. It's not something I can remember. I don't have a checklist. So if I don't do it all at once, I'm not going to do it. Or I have to restart the next time I try. So I find that with JRPGs as well, where uh, instead of those goals that I'm making, though, it's just with the story sometimes, where... I'll forget what's happening in it, or I'll forget who a character is, like you said, Stefan, yeah. right, with your yeah. Animal Crossing villagers. And I'll say, well, I'm not really getting what I want out of this. Maybe I should just start over. I, I think that's so interesting, too. And, and uh, another challenge that I hadn't even considered as much, this idea of going back to games and losing some of the sense of presence or self-understanding that you had before because uh, to to tease to the podcast listeners out there uh, and as dan knows i've been working for a while on something on sekiro that i'm really excited about but the uh double-edged katana of that as it were is that in order to really do that justice i've felt the requirement to go back to that game and play through it again to reacquaint myself with it Sekiro is a game that I platinumed years ago now when it came out. It's also, at least for me in my capacity, <laughs> excuse me, my capacity with video games, one of the technically hardest games to play. It's <laughs> my reflexes are not that good. So it's very challenging. Uh, and so I've, I've been thinking about how it is definitely harder to go back to something like that, to re-engage with it and do research and be able to talk about this idea you have for analyzing it than it is with a book or a film. Because, you know, if you wanted to, talk about some new aspect of inception that you were thinking about you just have to spend like the two hours to watch inception again and then you're good to go similarly with rereading a book but with video games especially those that are technically difficult there's this whole other hurdle of basically needing to retrain yourself and get yourself re-engaged with those kinds of play cycles before you're even technically proficient enough to re-engage with the story which like because that's so essential to the storytelling experience of those games i would contend it's not the same thing and not sufficient to just re-watch the game on youtube and thereby get reacquainted with it but god it makes it so much harder to get back and reflect on a game that you played a while ago to to have to uh you know to use the dark souls parlance get good again before you can actually talk about it to come back to the struggles of a game study scholar <laughs> it can be quite tough and quite exhausting because when i you know when i teach classes 
I usually, you know, I don't make up completely new classes every term, but instead I iterate on them, right? I modify them, I change up some examples, but the core of the class often is very much similar. Not identical, but similar. I have been working on games like Outlast, the, the horror game Outlast, which came out in 2013, pretty much since it came out, I think. It's been a long time <laughs> that I've been playing this game, uh, analyzing it. It's going to be the first big analysis that is that I just finished writing for my PhD. And um, I play it every term for my students as well. Because especially in times of Corona, we don't have access to the game lab here in Marburg, where students would usually be able to play. But instead, I stream it for them online. So basically, you could say that every year I have this ritual and I play through, not through the entirety of these games, but let's say the first four, four to eight hours of these games over and over again. Feels like Groundhog Day sometimes. Or Returnal, for that matter, <laughs> as we'll be talking about next week. <laughs> or Returnal, See, It's yes. all connected, <laughs> listeners. It's all connected. <laughs> well, and, and this, may be, this may be one of our, fav- our famous teasers for another perspective episode. But, Stefan, I'd like to pick your brain about how that changes your perception of the game. Yeah. Because if, if you go back and you're, you're reaching through these levels of meta-analysis, you know, where you're thinking, this is the 20th time I've played this in this context... I wonder how that colors your understanding of the game. And I think, I think that, again, talking about goals, if my goal to play a game is just to play it and experience it, that's very different from I'm going back to this game to platinum or get all the achievements, or I'm going back to it with the express purpose of research. So it's a very different world from going back to a film or a book. I think while I'm framing these aspects of JRPG storytelling as problems of access. One thing that I've only felt stronger and stronger about over the years as I've played more games and and done more philosophy of storytelling is that many of the greatest stories take what seems like a constraint of the medium or a challenge for engagement and are able to make special storytelling medium out of those exact constraints in order to do something really special. And I think that these attributes of JRPG storytelling we're talking about here are no exception to that rule. I was thinking about this um, challenge of the discontinuity of player maxims in particular, and, and something that was a little surprising to me was to think back to Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch, uh, which I know we haven't talked about on the podcast, but we three have talked about in the past. Uh, and one of the kind of the the cornerstone of my analysis of that game had to do with thinking about the player's trajectory in it, but also kind of assuming that the level of engagement in the player changes in a way that I think is at least in some sense designed by the story to happen where uh, that's a game that I did put down for a period of months because the first part of the game is very beautiful but also very color by numbers hero's journey jrpg and then I decided to go back to it because it was so beautiful and the end of the game just totally snaps you out of that and does something really radical to change your mode of engagement and also to prompt you to reflect on those earlier choices and ask the question of, wow, what was I really doing and how do I feel about that now? And I think 
that's the kind of story that actually wouldn't work as well without that kind of cultivated discontinuity of player maxims. So while these can be attributes that make it really challenging for an adult player to get into JRPGs, I think there are ways to tell stories that are special precisely because of those limitations. The last of such attributes that I wanted to highlight uh, that is perhaps the most challenging one for me on a pragmatic basis is what I refer to in the article as the opaque storytelling value of JRPG's optional content. And what I mean by that is just this. When you think about the storytelling of a JRPG or really video game stories more broadly, one of the really cool things that falls out of the fact that the medium is interactive is that there is this notion of a minimal plot where you can go through and experience the story uh, from the beginning of the game to the credits at the end. And then there's all of this other stuff of various kinds in the game that you can elect to do, but that you don't need to do in order to get through that minimal plot, right? And this can be anything from your typically conceived side quest to an optional boss to a collect-a-thon to there's any number of such things, right? Now, here's something really interesting, though, about all that optional content. Sometimes it can be stuff that doesn't make a difference at all to the main story with which you're engaging. And sometimes that optional content can make a hell of a lot of a difference, right? So I, I think the original Final Fantasy is a great example of this because without spoiling anything, it has everything from just optional areas that you can explore to get special items, which is great for making your party stronger but doesn't really materially impact the plot of the game, to totally optional characters that you can find and have join your party, which makes a pretty huge difference for how the story proceeds, right? I should say the original Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, I'm sorry. You said, you said Final, Final Fantasy. Fantasy. Yes. Just want the original to avoid Final confusion. Fantasy VII. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> a series with so many games and so many spinoffs that it's hard to keep oneself straight. Yes, I'm talking about the original Final Fantasy VII. Uh, or you can think this. This is not an example from Final Fantasy VII, but another example that really clearly shows this is uh, like optional final bosses in games like where if you do a certain series of optional content within the game then you get a totally different ending to the game right that radically changes how you think about its story and understand its world right so here's the problem for the adult player who has limited time and other obligations and is maybe not necessarily able to engage with every game that she wants to play to the extent that she would love to engage with it if she had infinite time if you are thinking about optional content in this way and you also want to be able to get through the game in an efficient way, what are your options? Well, it seems like you only have three. Either you can decide to just focus on the story and not pay attention to any of the optional content, in which case you'll get through the game efficiently, but you might miss content that would radically change your understanding of the game, like an optional ending or optional characters to join your party. Or you might decide, hey, you know, I, I don't want to run the risk of missing anything, so I'm going to engage with all the optional content, uh, in which case you don't miss anything, but you also exacerbate further the problem that we talked about before in terms of game stories being very, very long, especially in the genre of JRPGs. 
Or if you want to be really pragmatic about it, you have the third option of saying, well, I want to make sure I don't miss anything about the story. I also want to be judicious with my time. So I'm just going to look up beforehand or ask my friends, like, what's the optional content that I need to do in order to get a full understanding of the story, right? Which seems like a good option if you think about it for one second. But then if you think about it for another second, you realize that having that understanding of the outcomes and consequences of these various aspects of optional content ahead of time is going to totally change your experience of that content as a player, right? Because so much of storytelling and especially interactive storytelling has to do with the mode of discovery, right? Not knowing what's going to happen in the story as it unfolds and then discovering it, right? So no doubt you'll be able to technically experience all of the plot that you want to if you take that third option, but you're not going to discover it in the way that I would argue is oftentimes essential to optional storytelling content that makes a big difference to the main story. I think in many of those cases, you know, it's it's kind of it's hard to wrap our heads around this in an age where it's so easy to look things up online. But I think at least originally the idea of a secret ending or an optional final boss is that you discover this very unexpected thing that radically changes your understanding of the story. And if you know that's going to happen and seek it out ahead of time, that kind of at least to some extent undermines the very narrative and storytelling intention of that content in the first place, right? So I, th I think this is very hard and maybe the least tractable problem to solve for JRPG storytelling, because, you know, I, I quoted things like the length of Persona 5 to just get through the main story. But when you add all this optional content, I mean, that length to complete balloons up very quickly, like you were talking about, Stefan, since you always want to complete all of that content when you when you go into a game, right? And of course, players who appreciate a game will want to be able to explore and engage with all of that. But if you're thinking about the prudential considerations of you know, wanting to have enough time to get through and engage with the game on its own terms, it's really hard to figure out what to do with this problem of optional content. And I don't really know the best way for video games to solve this, but I do think it's a problem. For me, it's actually the case that there is no real optional content because I always do everything. <laughs> so I I, dis I would disregard these warnings even. It's, it's optional just because I feel like um, everything that is part of the game should ideally, in an ideal world, be crafted in such a way that it contributes to a meaningful experience in playing that game. And that's why I think uh, fluff and so on, pure filler material, it should just be, you know, just left out of, of any such a game. And I feel like a game like Persona 5 is an excellent example because I think Persona 5 does this really well. It does it so well that it almost feels like, it almost feels lacking when you do not do any of the optional things because they are so they so substantially change how you relate to the characters and how you experience the story that I feel like it's it's basically not really optional. It's like, okay, you can leave it all out and just plow through it within a hundred hours, which is still absolutely absurdly extensive. <laughs> but it, it's not going to give you that experience of what I would understand as having played through Persona 5. And so I think it's... The, the big issue for me is that we often consider video games too much in a quantitative matter in that we say the world is 
four times as big as our last game, and it's going to be like hundreds of hours of fun for players where you think like, come on, is that... <laughs> if, <laughs> is if that I tell fun? You, uh, war, and, war and peace, you know, I'm going to add another 500 pages with just like, you know, random anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> everything, he le- everything he left on the cutting room floor, it's all in there. Oh my God. <laughs> it's Dickens. That's, that's the problem with modern gaming you're talking about. It's just Charles yes. Dickens writing in a world where he's paid per word. <laughs> That's the problem. I'm so glad that you bring up Dickens because that's exactly what made it so tough for me uh, to read through some of the Dickens novels, honestly. As much as I like them, I found it tough when it's just partly just feels like it just feels like filler material. It's like, yeah, okay, we, the word. we gotta have, we gotta, it was, yeah, it was published in, uh, in like newspapers, uh, serialized, and then it's like, okay, I gotta make up something because I don't have any idea where the story's <laughs> gonna go next. And I think that is the essential problem of video games uh, <laughs> these days. So I, I definitely hear what you're saying, Stefan. And I, I'll also say, like, this whole exploration of prudential concerns is very unusual for me because, I mean, like, I've, I've written articles about the distinct narrative value of platinuming a game. I oftentimes will approach games in that way. And I agree with you in a matter of, you know, storytelling philosophy that everything within a game ought to constitute that story and inform its story, right? So I'm with you there. But let me try to make you feel the force of this prudential concern a little bit more, right? Because I I don't know if this is something you can relate to. It's something I can relate to quite a lot um, because I play a lot of single player games, right? And I love to share the stories of those games with people I care about, right? And I talk about this a little in in the article that I just published. I think for me, at least, it can be almost stressful to engage with optional content in a very long JRPG that I'm playing alongside someone else because I don't know whether that optional content is going to end up being material to the story, right? And it can feel almost as though I'm wasting that person's time or boring them if I end up going on this big collect-a-thon or doing a bunch of like optional side quests that end up then having nothing to do with the story. It's like a little diversion or intermission in this, you know, long, long story that we're engaging with together. Right. And, and that's part of what makes it just kind of stressful. I I think the word is stressful to engage with this kind of optional content, even understanding that yes, something as simple as getting the best weapon for a character can in some minimal sense influence the story. But if you're really trying to just experience that story and be able to talk about it with someone else, and you're already investing so much time in that JRPG, it can be hard to know how to manage that time in a way that feels respectful of the onlooker as opposed to just the player. Yeah, I totally understand. And this also highlights how video games are um, significantly different from other forms of, of media because you wouldn't normally say in a summary of a, or in a, in a novel it wouldn't it wouldn't occur to you to write in there like and then he went out and slew 500 goblins and then he got the you know blood soaked arc arc sword <laughs> or something because it's just it's not interesting in a, in a narrative sense and i do think that is that is a problem so i definitely i definitely see the point that it must if there is content that is I would say, uh, not necessary to complete, then it's good if it is in some way indicated. Because otherwise you can run into such problems like I did in Persona 4 Golden, 
where I wasn't actually aware as I played it for the first time that there were multiple endings. I could assume that it's a JRPG. Of course, there are multiple endings. But I, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't aware of the extent to which it would go, which is basically like, if you do not make the right choices and if you don't engage in the right kind of uh, content, then you can easily miss out on about 20 to 25% of the story, including its quote-unquote true ending. And it just left me quite hollow when I realized like, wow, I've been playing through this entire thing and there's so much and I, I can't even get to it now. Well, okay, I better play through that thing again. Uh, so yeah, that's, that can be quite frustrating. For me, it's, this, it's a weird kind of gray area because, um, you know, I, I alluded to this when I talked about Mass Effect, where for me, I, you know, there's this weird drive to both complete it, but also to have that ending that makes sense for you as, you know, your first understanding of the story. To keep in line with Persona, Persona 5 Royal um, has a number of endings that, you know, I, I got the one, I got the, quote, true ending because I was obsessively completing everything in that game. Um, but if you go and experience the other endings, it does kind of color your understanding of the story in a strange way. And I think that JRPGs have this ability to... Um, while presenting a true ending that you get from completing all of the side stuff or all of the fluff like stuff on you were saying right that i think that um there's multiple multiple meanings you can get from the game which is really interesting so now the question then becomes to me well have i truly completed a jrpg if i haven't seen all of those alternative endings even if it means that you know subsequent playthroughs meant i was doing less than that original playthrough where I completed everything. It's a, it's a strange thing that I think only JRPGs can really do. Just as a brief remark there, it can go either way. Uh, you can uh, feel like you're missing out if you don't get that true ending. But it can also, I mean, that's the case for me, that is the case for me in, the, in Disco Elysium at the moment. After I've completed it, I realize that I liked my playthrough. I liked the way the story went. I actually... I know there's a lot more there, but I don't necessarily feel like I want to go back and experience the story in a different way because this one is kind of my story of Disco Elysium. Not to not to be this guy and bring this up, but I'll just say Undertale is all about this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. But that's why that game is so good is because it's dissecting this weird sentimentality we have with games like this not to be that guy but you are always that guy um <laughs> always that guy i think we'll have to just do another podcast on this whole notion of endings because it's something i think about a lot um dan i know you know this stuff on you might or might not the term true ending just makes my skin crawl it's for me <laughs> yeah. it's a term that hits like immersiveness like i i don't know what that means i i i think i have a sense of what people are trying to say but when i sit down and try to analyze what actually constitutes that it's it's really hard for me to get a firm grasp on it at all uh and i think it's it's a really interesting topic for a future time because on the one hand there's certainly that attachment to what one sees as the preferred plot that you as the player wanted to enact but then also i think one of the things that's so special about the storytelling medium that is a video game and which by the way totally cuts against the grain of all these prudential concerns that i've i've listed out here in terms of accessibility of jrpgs is the fact that because it is possible to structure the plot with multiple outcomes 
a level of storytelling that is available in video games that doesn't exist in other media is telling a story where some of the meaning comes out of not just what the ending is, but what all of the possible endings are. And so I oftentimes feel like in order to get a sense for what the implied author of the story is trying to express, you need to think not just about how any single ending was written, but rather about the universe of possibilities that that author is describing. Right, to use one toy example to get people's thoughts going before we move on, uh, one of my favorite instances of this is Dishonored, which I've written about before on the site, because it's a game with very different paths, very different outcomes. But there isn't really any kind of quote unquote good outcome in the sense of being able to save everyone or do good things. And so you end up, if you play through all the different possibilities of Dishonored, feeling as though you can be more or less chaotic, but really the plurality of choices is just designed so that uh, in a way that is narratively meaningful, the player can have a really fun time doing ridiculous stuff. And it's not about figuring out a way to be morally good or something like that, whereas it might be if the possibilities were structured in a different way. So I, I think that's a fascinating topic to think about for another time. Yeah, I'm going to note that down as an episode to do in the future. What is a true ending? And I think in this one that we record then, I think we should go all meta. I think we should give our podcast a true ending <laughs> or the episode. <laughs> we should give this episode a true ending. <laughs> I don't know if listeners would love or hate that or if I would for that matter. <laughs> we'll do a, a clue a clue the movie style ending. Well, this could have happened, but what if it was this? Yes. <laughs> Well, you have to you have to rewind to certain spots and then re-listen, and eventually, then you'll have like another five minutes of podcast episode. That's gonna oh be God. fantastic. Don't you just love video game analysts, dear listeners? We're so fun and relatable. <laughs> Absolutely not nerdy at all. <laughs> Never. We're gonna move ahead and we're gonna dive into our side quests. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we go into additional things that are on our mind that relate to the world of gaming, interesting articles that we found, or games that we've played, which is the case with our first side quest, because Dan, you played through Resident Evil Village recently. I sure did, and I had a really good time doing it. So uh, back when we first recorded our, our pilot, I guess you'd call it, um, I talked about an article that made me upset about um, Lady Dimitrescu, the tall vampire lady, uh, being compared to other video game characters, which is always a, a thorn in my side. But um, that didn't color my enjoyment of Resident Evil Village. Uh, it's a really great follow-up to Resident Evil Biohazard, the previous game in the series, and uh, does something really interesting with the format of Resident Evil. Um, Resident Evil is a really old franchise at this point. And so I think they're at the stage where they're trying, they're kind of doing whatever they want. And I love that about it. So they're not following any particular formula. They're just sort of following the general aesthetic and tropes of the Resident Evil series. Um, down to the fact that, uh, there's a lot of incredible callbacks to the entire series, but characters that, are recurring also feel new and and differently realized and um it's a it's a fantastic just chapter into it and to to give a more like substantive review of what i really liked about it so the the all of the 
material that I was aware of around this was focused on Lady Dimitrescu, the you know tall vampire lady, because of course, if you have a character like that, that's going to be the flagship of your marketing campaign. I understand how the world works. I get it. But that led me to believe that the entire game was going to be about her and about vampires. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that the game is actually more of a an old, old Japanese trope of there are four lords that you need to fight and defeat. And they each have uh, a level um, that is a different kind of spooky haunted house <laughs> that you go through. And it manages to be... Uh, each of them managed to be radically different and interesting, and they explore a different part of the main character, Ethan Winter's psyche and his past and his relationship to the world of Resident Evil and biohazard and bioweapons and mutamycetes and all the different uh, things that Resident Evil throws around terminology-wise. So it was uh, what what we would lovingly call a romp. Um, but there was a lot of interesting things in there, and I'm always blown away with how well crafted these late, these uh, more recent Capcom games are. I think starting with the Resident Evil 2 remake, you can tell that there's a lot of polish and that there's a lot of thought that goes into what Resident Evil is nowadays and how it should be presented. So, really enjoyed it. Um, for long term fans of Resident Evil, you. Uh, it, it is, it's weirdly beat by beat Resident Evil 4 in terms of like set pieces, like just to give you a sense of what I mean by this, uh, the first set piece when you enter the village is weird, spooky things are happening. And then all of a sudden you're attacked by like a horde of the zombie enemy, which are the, the lichens in this game. You have to blockade doors. There's a huge, uh, there's a huge guy with a sledgehammer that's very reminiscent of the chainsaw character from Resident Evil 4. It feels very similar down to the point where a bell ringing calls them all off and stops it. So there's a lot of, um, to quote George Lucas, uh, it's like poetry, it rhymes. There's a lot of things happening in these later Resident Evil games that are calling back to the original games, but also doing a very new thing with them. So if you're a Resident Evil fan, it's got my seal of approval for what that's worth. And um, it does a lot of really cool things with the genre and the franchise as a whole. I've heard that it also does a lot with Ethan Winter's hands, because that seems to be some kind of some kind of trope these days. Yes. That his hands are perpetually getting injured to a comical degree. Is that true? Absolutely true. So <laughs> Biohazard, Resident Evil 7 starts with him getting his hand cut off by a chainsaw Jesus and it, it becomes a, a part of that story in a strange way. And yeah, this game is both commenting on how funny that is and also making it part of his backstory oh, <laughs> in a really comical way. I find that Hans thing super interesting because I'm currently, as I've mentioned earlier, working on Outlast, which is a game that I think kicked off this entire trend because in Outlast, there's a sequence where the protagonist, you play in first-person perspective, and the only thing that you see most of the time is his hands as he leans against doorways. And so, you, so you identify with those hands, and there's a yes. sequence in which an antagonist cuts off two of his fingers, and you see for the rest of the game these uh, bloody stumps on his hands that basically uh, materialize the trauma and the uh, corporeal aesthetics 
of the horror. And I think that Resident Evil works in similar ways, right? It does. And uh, one of the parts, it had me laughing when it happened just because of how on the nose it was. But then it it really does become a, a trope of Ethan Winter's character in a strange way. So in that in that opening sequence where you're beset by all the lichens that are coming in, the first thing that happens is that one of them, so throughout the throughout the whole opening of the game, I was looking at Ethan's hands because that's how you identify with him, like you said, Stefan. So I'm looking at his hands and I'm thinking, wow, they really healed up nicely after Biohazard. That's good for <laughs> Ethan. And, uh, and then the first thing that happens is you, you go under uh, some barbed wire and it deliberately shows that he's cut himself on his hand. And then when you're attacked by the lichens, um, the first lichen that shows up bites his, his fingers off. And so for the remainder of the game, he has a bandaged hand with missing two missing fingers. And so you really start thinking, this guy can't get a break with his hands. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, to get kind of with a terrible fate about why that is, I think that you're absolutely right. It's the part that we identify with. And also, I think it's very difficult nowadays to make effective survival horror because it used to be that survival horror was so effective because of the limitation. Um, Silent Hill is the perfect example where the fog was just necessary for the PlayStation to run the game. Um, but now you can do whatever you want. And so I think the, the difficulty in making something scary or feeling like you're, you're powerless is to clearly identify, um, your connection to a character with the one thing we only see and then see how progressively worse things get for those hands. So it, it's a, it's not just a silly fun house. Resident Evil has always been doing really interesting things with the medium, and this is no exception. I want to double down on going all with a terrible fate on this hands issue by, by <laughs> saying, just, just as an argument, I, this is something that I'm speculating on in my, in my PhD as well, that it is part of the identification and of the effectiveness of the affect of those sequences, that when you play a video game, you have a controller or a mouse and keyboard and you work a lot with your fingers and your hands. So you actually have some very uh, like um, flimsy movements that you're doing with your hands and they are imperative in the way that how you interact with the game. And I think that is also a reason why mutilating the hands of a video game avatar, uh, it can be so effective. Then I think uh, I, would, I would really enjoy it if you played Village and uh, let me know what you thought, because uh, what is what is sort of a a heinous act in Biohazard leads into farce and then back to heinous in <laughs> Resident <laughs> Evil Village. So I think uh, um, the other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly is that um, we were talking in the main story about accessibility and time. And something I really like about these recent Resident Evil entries is that they they do... I think really um, respect the player's time, and uh, also they're perfectly crafted to um, entice the player to be speedier in their run. Because if you think about it, these survival horror games, there's two elements typically. There's the puzzle solving, and then there's the combat. And what Resident Evil has always been great about doing is you remember what the puzzle is after the first time you play it. So that aspect is quicker. And then they give you, uh, there's often a new game plus feature, so maybe you have the weapons that you've collected. So what may feel like um, maybe making the game too easy ends up becoming a challenge to see how quickly can I play through this game. And I think I've played it three times and the quickest I clocked was three hours. So it, it, it rewards 
quickness, I guess. Okay, that's surely not too long to beat. I brought a small comment for my side quest because I wanted to briefly talk about the mute button on the PlayStation 5 for all of those out there who were not that lucky to have a PS5 by now because I know there's still barely anywhere uh, available. You can press a small button that is under the PlayStation button that if you press it just once, it allows you to mute your microphone, right? So others can't hear you. If you long press that button, then it instantly puts the entire console and including all sounds into mute, which is very practical because someone might enter the room, your phone might ring or something. You don't want to like, you don't have to pick up a remote and then and put down the volume of your TV, but you can just do that with the PS5 directly. And I find that a wonderful design choice because it's just... It's for me an excellent example of how a small feature can really help in uh, fine-tuning the overall experience of using an object, in this case, a video game console. And at the same time, and this is the criticism that I want to point out, at the same time, it is not quite there when it comes to being perfect for two reasons. The first one, and this is actually something for, especially for those of you that have got a PS5 but have not dug through the menus extensively, the microphone in the PlayStation 5 DualSense controller is on by default. And that means that the vibration features, the rumble features of the DualSense, which are key features, right, in the, in the marketing as well of the PS5, they are actually weakened because that microphone is on. In the settings of the PS5, you can adjust how intense this, uh, the sensitivity of the rumble of the vibrations should be. And if the microphone is on, as it is by default, then they are set to weak, which is quite baffling to me. The, the console doesn't tell you this either. So it is something where one of the key features that is advertised about the controller is actually impacted by the fact that the microphone is on by default. And, and you don't even know this as a player unless you dig deep into the menu or you read up about it online. If you want to have the full vibrational experience, <laughs> I'm going to say, of the dual sense, <laughs> you have to mute that microphone. However, if you mute the microphone, and I always have it muted by default, uh, then a small LED is glowing on the lower part of the controller, which intersects with another feature because you have these beautiful LEDs around the touchpad of the DualSense that I really love, that change in color and so on. It's quite beautiful. I really like it. But there's this additional ugly orange LED signaling that the microphone is muted that is constantly on for me. And that is just something I can't understand. So my plead to PlayStation, as I know they probably diligently listen to this show and take every hint <laughs> as to how they optimize their console is, give us the option, please, to configure the, the button in such a way that the microphone is off by default and the LED is off as well. And if the mic is on, that would make sense to me. When the mic is on, it should signal you so that you know that people can hear you, not when it's off. So I just want to basically uh, revert this <laughs> revert this entire concept, put it from its head to its feet, basically. It's funny how those those little things peripherally change how we're experiencing something where you're you're you, you don't think that you're going to pay that much attention to it. And yet I completely agree. I think about all of that when I'm holding that controller. 
the intensity of the rumble, Stefan, is it a really significant difference after you turn off the microphone and have it set to higher than weak? To me, it, yes, it definitely makes a difference because I initially, I had it muted straight from the get-go and then I tried it out with the microphone on and to me it feels substantially weaker, yes. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm one of those people you mentioned who had no idea about that feature uh, or or bug. Is it a bug or a feature? Who knows? <laughs> Until you just told us. <laughs> I think one of the things to Sony's credit that is very cool about the controllers and I would at least hope is uh, would take this as a use case is I really love how you can plug in the controllers to your PS5 and get software updates ported to them. That strikes me as just such a cool feature to be able to continue to innovate in what is such a sophisticated piece of technology, this this controller that they have. Uh, and so one might imagine, you know, I say, as someone who knows next to nothing about the actual encoding or engineering of these things, that if Sony were to hear this, it would be relatively easy to make it the case that you could actually patch the controller and make it so that you could have the option of toggling the LED light off on the microphone, for instance, uh, when you choose to turn the microphone off. That could be cool. Yeah, and if that were the case, then in Sony's books, they would they could legitimately say, we've made this mute button perfect because it can't get any better yeah. <laughs> in, my, in my perception. I don't know whether there's anyone out there who says, I want the mic to be always on and the LED always flashing. Because, you know, we've got so many LEDs in our setup these days. I don't like that. When I, when I play a video game or I watch a film or something, I want to see only that and not like unnecessary information from random LEDs glowing in my face. Uh, yeah. The German on the podcast evoking <laughs> Gesamtkunstwerk. I'm so surprised. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. I want my room to be dark and only the screen to be lit. That's right. Ah, <laughs> so, Aaron, it's time for your Final Fantasy VII remake analysis that is part of the article that we've already addressed in the main story. I'm quite curious what you have to say about that. Yeah, so this is something of part two of the the main story that we talked about earlier on. Uh, although it's perhaps more fitting to think of it less as a part two and more of how I think one game in particular, namely Final Fantasy VII Remake, does a really, really good job of finding very interesting and narratively meaningful ways around the problems of accessibility for adults uh, playing JRPGs that we enumerated earlier. And I frame it in that way because... You know, while I think this could be a really interesting model for JRPGs structuring their stories to be more accessible generally in the future, uh, I think there are probably many such models. And I encourage listeners out there to think about some of their own favorite JRPGs that may overcome the challenges we talked about in the main story in interesting ways that are different than Final Fantasy VII Remake. With that said, for listeners who don't know... Um, Really, since a little while after the release of Final Fantasy VII Remake last year, we've been running this analysis series about it on the publication with a terrible fate because uh, not all analysts involved with the site, but a robust group of them all have the sense 
that this game really does do a number of groundbreaking things when it comes to storytelling. Uh, and I really think this is the kind of game that is going to mark a significant and positive shift in video game storytelling more broadly. Uh, and so I wanted to create a venue for exploring that across multiple dimensions. Right. Uh, so this article is the latest entry in that series. And I think it's it's a really interesting study in how JRPGs can tell stories that are still incredibly robust, thematically deep, everything you would want out of a great story, but in a way that overcomes those problems that we talked about earlier, right? Uh, and it also comes with a brand new interpretation of part of the game uh, that I was excited to finally share with people because uh, I'd been chewing on it for a while. Uh, so basically to summarize this, and I encourage people to read the article, this really, I, I break down how Final Fantasy VII Remake circumvents the three problems that we talked about earlier on, which, as a reminder, are the problem of the length of a game's minimal plot uh, and the discontinuity of player maxims and the opaqueness of the optional content in a game. Uh, and I break down how it solves it in three ways. Uh, one is how it deals with time within the story. The second is how it makes meaning out of a short and, in fact, curtailed plot. And the third is how it uses its post-game or the actions that the player takes after completing that minimal plot as a way of making its thematic content more robust without thereby extending the plot. Right? So, point the first, right? thinking about how the game uses time. We talked about how long it can take to complete JRPGs in our main story. And we talked about how when a player takes time off in between sections of a JRPG, whether out of necessity because other things happen or simply because it isn't gripping them that much, it can be really hard for them across a number of dimensions to subsequently re-engage with that JRPG, right? Um, I found myself thinking as I was reflecting on Final Fantasy VII Remake how even though, of course, it's it's not possible for a video game to wave a magic wand and make it so the player has no other time commitments and so they can just play the game in one go, I do think there are ways in which it can represent its story that can make it more or less conducive to a player feeling a sense of obligation to complete that story in a timely manner. And I think part of what's interesting about how many traditional JRPGs are structured that can disincentivize a sense of urgency is that even though many JRPGs feature these, you know, crazy powerful arch villains who are threatening the entire universe, uh, or at least the continent that the main character lives on, uh, or somewhere in between, uh, the actual plots and journeys to overcome these antagonists take place over really long periods of time, they're really long journeys. And in fact, they're journeys that within the context of the narrative can oftentimes be indefinitely extended through something as simple as the resting mechanic. So if you think of your favorite JRPG, uh, I would bet good money that in that JRPG, you are able to probably rest at inns in the various towns that you encounter. That's a very standard mechanic for being able to recover the hit points and the abilities and everything else of your party. But also within the narrative, that constitutes staying somewhere overnight, right? Which implicitly, I think, 
makes it much easier for the player to think about this quest, even if it has epic stakes, as something that can take as much time as they want to, because they can literally make it take as much time as they want to within the context of that story, right? Final Fantasy VII Remake does something very, very different. Um, The time cadence of its story is very rigidly defined. I won't say that you can say this with absolute certainty, but the game makes it pretty clear, and I think as clear as possible without having actual clocks and things within the world, that the game takes place over six days. And I break down where the events fall in that timeline uh, in the article. Uh, And when you rest, you can only do so in these very transient fleeting moments of sitting poor Cloud and his giant buster sword down on a bench for a few moments. You aren't able to make it a new day or anything like that. All of the overnight rests are scripted within the plot of the game, right? And I think that sense of well-defined time and short time at that within the story, even without there being something like a countdown clock, like what you get in Final Fantasy Lightning Returns, right? The player gets a sense of urgency. They're not able to delay the plot in the same way. And so even though life might get in the way uh, in terms of having to take time off in the game, I don't think there's the same incentive to postpone completing the game over a long period of time, which helps to solve the issue of the discontinuity of player maxims that we talked about before, right? I also think it's really nice because that sense of well-defined time and progressing the plot of the game sets up how the game is able to deal with optional content. We talked about how it's really hard to know which side quests to choose to engage with or not because it's not clear how they'll influence the overall story. Final Fantasy VII Remake does a really good job of setting the context for the majority of its side quests as simple opportunities to help people who live in the world of the game, most of whom live in the slums, right? Uh, And basically framing it as odd jobs that Cloud and his friends can take on uh, in the day before they go on to do the next thing in the main story's plot. Right. And because the time is well defined and progresses just with the main plot of the game, there's an unspoken implication that helping these characters and taking on these side quests won't do anything that radically changes the trajectory of the plot. It can't because the plot has this well-defined timeline outside of those side quests, right? In contrast to something like, uh, I use the example of Majora's Mask in the article because it similarly has a bunch of plots helping people, but because there's this ability to indefinitely reset time and go through a million different three-day cycles, you actually get this weird paradox where even though it seems like you're just helping people who live in a village as you are in Final Fantasy VII Remake, you can help people in ways that end up occupying an entire three-day cycle of Majora's Mask. This rigid and you know non-replicable timeline in Final Fantasy Remake um, gets over that problem, right? So I will move on, but first I'm interested, uh, do you guys, do you share that sense that many JRPGs uh, in terms of not only length, but also the indefinite nature of their time make it easier for players to postpone or prolong those plots? Does that resonate? Well, I think so, definitely. It is part of what makes it hard to complete uh, games sometimes, JRPG sometimes, to me, because I feel like I need to do everything before I move on, before I trigger the next plot point, which I might not be able to, you know, uh, uh, not be able to go behind again. 
mm-hmm. or to go back on. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, it is part of the charm, I think, of many JRPGs that they just take out the sense of urgency. I like it in Final Fantasy VII Remake. I think it's very well done because it's so naturally integrated in how the story flows and how you explore these towns that it feels very organic. I didn't really consciously think about it up to the point that you brought it up. But I also obviously, I love such things like, you know, Dragon Quest or Octopath Traveler, these games where you can just linger around as long as you like and this evil threat that is coming on to consume the world apparently takes as much time as you so i i find that also quite charming it makes it makes many jrpgs what they are which is a very wholesome place to experience i think uh something that i like in the setup of remake is that um so full you know full disclosure i've fully played through intermission the new yuffie dlc at this point wait isn't it called intergrade <laughs> I'm confused. I'm super confused now. It's a whole other story. The upgrade to the PS5 is called Intergrade, or like the collection of the base game and the DLC is Intergrade. The DLC itself is Intermission. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so no more is added again, boys. But uh, I, it reminded me of how the side quests are set up in the sense that there is this urgency. But what I like about it is that once you get to a chapter, you hear about all the side quests um, pretty pretty quickly into the chapter and then you have the option to go and do them before you move on to the next plot point so there's this sense of urgency but um also this this freedom to go and do these things and then typically at the end of a chapter it will ask you are you sure you want to move on or one of the characters will say hey we're about to get in the thick of it do you think we should hang back a bit like there's there's something that the game triggers to keep you around or you can make the choice to move forward. And I think having that choice is nice because it makes you think twice about whether you've done everything or not. I think that's a great point. And I also think it's it's definitely salient, Stefan, as you say, that one of the aspects of a JRPG's charm is the ability to live in and occupy the world and experience it without that sense of deadline. That's something that a couple of people noted in the comments of the article, and I think it's fair. I also think it's a good point to remember what we've talked about earlier on the podcast in terms of video games being able to serve different functions, right? And I think the functionality of a game as an engaging fantasy world to explore and occupy um, can at least when you're thinking about the adult world of having limited time to engage with things like stories, um, potentially cut against the grain of engaging with a video game as a story, right? Where, especially because of these considerations around JRPG stories, uh, it can be prudentially challenging to engage with them as such, right? But but I think that uh, the incentive for exploration is a great point. Uh, and, and I think you're right. In, in a game like Final Fantasy VII Remake, you don't get that as much in something like a Dragon Quest because it is more, I think, story-oriented in terms of its mere structure, right? I think the mere structure to to get to the other half of this side quest, um, side side quest in the podcast, not side quest in Final Fantasy VII Remake, um, is this the way it structures how it represents its themes and how that interacts with its plot and the length of its plot in a way that I think is very cool. Because uh, to put it in a slogan, I think what Final Fantasy VII Remake says is you can express multiple layers of theming with a single succinct plot. 
and it shows you how to do that using video game mechanics, right? It does that across a few levels. Um, the first most basic way that I, I talked about in much more depth in the previous article that I wrote titled Final Fantasy VII Remake is completely incomplete is in its its main story, its minimal plot. You know, a lot of people have complained about the fact that it is just a single portion of the broader Final Fantasy VII story and that it feels interrupted or very aware of itself as a single part of what's going to be a broader series. Um, I think that's half right. It strikes me as a misunderstanding, especially of the game's ending, to say that it's cut off in a way that will only make it meaningful as a single entry in a broader series. Dear listeners, I'm pinging myself in here briefly from the future, so to speak, because I'm currently editing the show and I realized that it might be a good idea to put a spoiler warning into this segment here because Aaron is now going to talk about the specifics of the ending of Final Fantasy VII Remake. And if you still want to play that game and if you still want to be surprised by the ending, if you don't want to know anything, uh, then feel free to either skip ahead a minute or you can also stop listening at this point because we're not going to go into uh, much other stuff uh, beyond uh, beyond this point. So here's the last uh, ping warning sound and then Aaron is going to go ahead, take it away. Quite to the contrary, what I think is really cool about the game and especially its final act, as I detail in that other article I mentioned, is that it makes this game meaningful and thematically complete on its own terms uh, and precisely because of the way it has an interrupted plot in a way that I hope people will be able to, you know, look back on remake, even as the later games are published and see it as a story on its own terms, because I actually really worry that some of its interesting storytelling nuances will be lost when we are only able to see it as the first entry in a broader series, namely to make a very long story, very short. I think that, the final act of remake where you see the characters confronting the whispers who represent very roughly speaking the expectations of how the plot is supposed to go based on the original final fantasy seven and are made to defeat those and are subsequently made to defeat Sephiroth, even though he's only been this kind of vague gesture in the game so far and doesn't seem to be grounded as the main antagonist, but is presented as the final boss. And then finally, we see Cloud and Sephiroth engaging in this cinematic, non-interactive battle at a place aptly called the Edge of Creation, on the edge both of the universe and of the game's plot. I think the precise way in which that is structured actually ends up radically liberating the characters of the game, not only from how we expect the plot is going to go, but also from the very nature of being characters in the story. I think that's a very rich and challenging theme and a really interesting way to use storytelling and video game storytelling especially to represent what it is to recognize one's fate and ultimately move beyond it in a metaphysically meaningful way and as someone who thinks a lot and, and plays a lot of games and reads stories about this notion of challenging fate i really have not seen any other way to represent that theme in as compelling or narratively consonant a way. And that's what made me so fascinated about Final Fantasy VII Remake, because I think it really is a case, 
as we gestured at earlier, of a story that couldn't be told as well in any other way, and that actually is told using the constraint of having an interrupted and abbreviated plot, but a plot that is abbreviated in this key way. And then I think what's really cool is you can ask this question, okay, even given that this is a really compelling theme of the richest kind we would want in a story, it seems like part of what makes JRPGs so great at storytelling is precisely the fact that their plots are so elaborate and complex and rich. And so isn't it just going to necessarily be the case that we are losing some thematic nuance by having a plot that is more succinct? And I think that's a totally fair worry to have. I think what makes Final Fantasy VII Remake all the cooler to me is that it subsequently uses its post-game in terms of all of the events and activity available to the player after the player has completed that minimal plot as a way not to add more plot to the game, but rather to add more layers to the core themes of the game, right? It's, it's very common, especially nowadays, for games to have things like secret endings or additional plot or episodes that you can get after finishing the minimal plot, which doesn't really do anything to solve for the accessibility problem of the length of JRPG plots. Because, you know, if you want a full understanding of the story, I think as we were talking about earlier, it's fair to say that you you still have to get all the way to that extra plot. And so, you know, making a quote unquote shorter plot before you arrive at that secret ending doesn't really solve the problem. Uh, what Final Fantasy VII Remake does instead is say, all right, here's the minimal plot. If you want to go through the game and just experience that, you get this great theme on the base level of characters being able to challenge their destinies, be free from the notion of being in a story, all of this stuff. But then if you want to go even deeper with regard to those same themes and get more narrative value out of it that way, you can do all these activities in the post game in order to add another layer to that core theme, which means that the same level of storytelling nuance, I would argue, is there, but it does so in a way that allows those players who might be more time constrained or simply not want to commit 80 hours to the game to play a shorter version of just the mere plot and still get thematic value out of it. That additional layer that comes with the post game is something that I think is tremendously interesting and, and one of the coolest aspects of the game to me. Uh, I think it, it uh, surprisingly turns on understanding one of the most unassuming side characters uh, in the game, a guy by the name of Chadley, whom you meet very early on, but actually don't fully understand very meaningfully uh, until the post-game, uh, which is why I've named that additional layer of the game's theming, the Chadley interpretation, uh, which I spell out in the last part of the article on With a Terrible Fate. And so I encourage you to check that out if you're interested in understanding how Final Fantasy VII Remake pushes its themes uh, to the next level, pun intended. We can hardly sing the praise enough of Final Fantasy VII Remake. Just to me, it's so, so baffling that this game is so rich, so textually rich, considering that this is a remake, right? I don't think that anyone had anticipated that one of the most innovative games, especially when it comes to uh, storytelling in video games, would actually turn out to be a remake. <laughs> so uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. And obviously, uh, you, dear listeners, can find Aaron's article, including the Chadley interpretation, in our show notes. 
And uh, yeah, then I think we're going to wrap it up for today, right? Uh, thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. Um, one specific thing that I would really love if, if you like this show, then you can do us a, actually a great favor if you just share it on social media or tell your friends about it, because that would mean a whole lot to us. Because we're in an early stage of this podcast and everyone who knows about it and can potentially discover it uh, might be an addition to our precious uh, community of uh, listeners. You can obviously find all of our content at withaterriblefate.com and you can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, or send us an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And then we'll talk again next week, presumably, very likely, about our impressions of Returnal. See you then. Mm-hmm.